content. Book TV continues now with Afterwards. Cornell West explores Martin Luther King Jr.'s radical political thinking, a side of the late civil rights leader that the author argues has been diminished and sanitized. Cornell West speaks with Khalil Gibran Muhammad, director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Dr. West, it is a real delight to have you here on this show. Um, I am grateful myself for being invited to have a, an occasion to interview you about this new edited volume on Dr. King, The Radical King, Martin Luther King Jr., edited and introduced by Cornell West. This is a real treasure of some of the most important speeches and letters and published documents of Dr. King. So what inspired you to do this project? Well, wonderful, brother, I just want to begin by saluting you. Magnificent work you do at the Schomburg, though, brother. You're a caretaker of one of the great institutions in the American empire. You do it with such elegance and such vision and such sensitivity and your scholarship, actually, for me, especially in terms of this discourse on hyper-incarceration among poor people, disproportionately chocolate, is crucial. So just be able to spend this time with you, my brother, Thank is you. a beautiful Thank thing. You. But when we think of Brother Martin King, we really are thinking of the same tradition that produced you, that produced me. He's one of the great moments in the uh, tradition of a grand people who, in the face of terror and trauma and stigma, was able to generate levels of love and vision and, and, and unbelievable high-quality service to the least of these. He is a Christian minister, first and foremost. That is his calling. And what I thought is very important, you and I know that Brother Martin gets deodorized every January. <laughs> he gets sanitized and sterilized every January. Santa classified. Yeah, they Santa classified it, Brother. Turn what do you mean to it. by that? Exactly. an old man with a smile, toys in his bag, handing out gifts. Everybody got a smile on their face, and the FBI is saying, you the most he's the most dangerous man in America. And other black leaders are saying when he's trying to organize poor people and critiques of Vietnam put forward with such power, he's now betraying the movement. He's un American. He's a traitor to the country and so forth. And so what does Martin do? He says, You never knew me. You never knew me. I'm called to love babies in Vietnam. Babies in Appalachia, babies in South Side of Chicago, babies in Harlem, babies in Ethiopia. I'm a Christian minister. For me, justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. That's Martin King. But there's no Martin without Ella Baker, without Stokely right. Carmichael, without so many of the Freedom Diane Nash. We can go on and on. Let's Fannie talk, Lou Hamer. Talk a little bit for a moment about the Santa classification with respect to African Americans. Because I think that part of what you're describing is a kind of historical amnesia for the fact that Dr. King was not always well-loved within the black community. And you cite a pretty remarkable poll uh, from late in his life that says that 55% of African Americans did not support Dr. King on Vietnam and ending poverty. And I think it was the ending poverty part that caught me off guard. Yes, yes. No, it's true. And it's very sad. You got 72% of Americans across the board, all colors, and 55% of black people disapproving with Martin. You remember what Whitney Young said to Brother Martin in terms of, uh, you setting back the black freedom movement, Martin looked at him and said, oh, what you say may get you money from a corporation, but it won't get you a foothold in the kingdom of truth. Mm. Typical intra-struggle against black, within black leadership over where to go. See, Martin was saying, corporations not going to dictate what my conscience 
actually is. Right. I know the difference between right, right and wrong. Absolutely. And big money and all of the thrills and access to power is not going to determine what I say. You see, Martin was like, uh, he liked John Coltrane, man. He could have been doing my favorite things for the rest of his career and been a multi-multi-millionaire. He brings in Eric Dolphy, Archie Shep, Young Brothers. We're going to go free jazz. What's Coltrane doing? Being true to himself. Well, you see, this is to me the real standard of uh, what we need in this present moment. And so we got a lot of black people, for example, who say they love Martin Luther King Jr. And they talk about speaking truth to power, but they don't want to speak truth to the present power. Mm-hmm. You we see what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> they want to be accommodationist. That's not Brother Martin. And there's nothing wrong with being accommodationist if you're honest about it and acknowledge what its limitations are. But don't lie to yourself right. and acting as if you're so progressive and prophetic when you're really just a... Uh, a uh, cheerleader at a bootlicker. I mean, you got to be <laughs> honest and candid about these things. So uh, we're going to get to that for sure. sure but I, but sure, I do, sure. do want to ask you a little bit more about the book itself. Absolutely. So is the, well, first of all, define, uh, you've already kind of defined the radical king. Yes. But in terms of the text itself, was the radical king hidden in plain sight in terms of the actual textual record of his words and his wisdom? Um, or did you have to pull up or pull out obscure passages and texts from more well-known speeches that he gave. I'm curious about the the approach to the compilation itself. When when my dear sister, uh, Coretta Scott King, she, to me, legendary, just a level of dignity and grace that's beyond description. When I first met her in 1986, I gave a speech at U.S. Capitol when they brought in the statue of Brother Martin with Bob Moses and the others. This is 1986? 1986. Okay, so this is before the King holiday. This is 10 years into the annual fight in FBI records informing members of Congress that King was subversive and was the the most dangerous Negro in America. That's exactly right. Right, okay. She she said, when I on my first date, Martin said, I bet you never met a black socialist, have you? She said, no, <laughs> man, Alabama, with the Antioch, I'm at New School Conservatory Music. I'm not used to running into black social. He said, yes, because his hero was not just Walter Shivers, who taught sociology at Morehouse from 1928 on into the 1960s, and he would teach courses on Weber, Durkheim, Marx, you know, the great sociologists that you studied yep. and yep. taught and professor in Indiana University. But uh, also... Norman Thomas, mm-hmm. you see, and of course the essay in the book, The Bravest Man I Ever Met. Who was Norman Thomas? Well, he's Phi Beta Kappa from Princeton, class 1905, Union Seminary in 1911, turned down the big church on the east side of New York in order to pastor in Harlem, lost his Christian faith, became a socialist, ran for socialist, uh, ran the Socialist Party for many, many times, ran for so many offices, right. but of course spoke at, uh, at the uh, March on Washington, Vanilla Brother in the history of John Brown, Miles Horton, Ann Braden, we can go on and on. White brothers and sisters fundamentally committed to the freedom of everybody, including black people. And Martin says, Norman Thomas is a fundamental part of who I am. Yeah. He's not as much as Benjamin Mays was. Benjamin Mays is legendary, iconic for good reasons, right? But he's a part of who I am. Can I share, share a story sure, that you, sure, uh, so sure. you allude to this story, but I, I found it fascinating. Yes. Uh, so in 1952, so uh, Dr. King and Coretta are, are dating. Um, they're not yet married. And you cite, 
you cite a passage from this letter at the top of the book, but but my sources gave me a little bit more detail. Oh, <laughs> so, um, the passage here it indicates an exchange of ideas and and romance between Dr. King and Coretta at the time. Now, what's interesting to your point about Norman Thomas and socialism, they uh-huh. talked about having both read Edward Bellamy's yes. uh, 1887 Utopian Socialist yeah, Fantasy, yeah, highly looking backwards. What, uh, yeah. For some reason, I've forgotten the full name of it. But um, And in this letter, he writes to Coretta, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what he says. He says, I'm not a conventional Baptist minister. I believe in the social gospel. It's not enough to save souls. We need to change society so the soul will have a chance. My father was a thoroughgoing capitalist, but I don't want to own a lot, and ignoring people's needs is wrong. I'm much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism has outlived its usefulness. It takes the necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. I find it fascinating because that's 1952. (laughs) That's our brother laying it out already, which means when he goes back to gut bucket Jim Crow South, He already has this legacy right. inside of him. Right. But you know what I, what I love about Martin, though, and what in some ways sets him apart from most black people and most black leaders, but Malcolm is a part of it and Ella is a part of it, as well, Stokely is too, his radical love. And it's a radical love and a radical freedom, a radical freedom in a radical love, which means from the very beginning, he's letting Coretta know, I'm a different kind of Negro. Mm-hmm. Now, there's Benjamin Davis in Harlem. He's communist. He's already right. elected city council and so forth. So it's not as if socialism... And A. Philip Randolph uh, himself. A. Philip Randolph is democratic socialist. had already been that's a right. socialist. That's right. But at the same time, when it comes to mainstream black uh, uh, education or when it comes to mainstream black leadership, being explicitly socialist like that is not the best way to win the popularity of the black masses. Mm-hmm. And Martin's already letting her know. Now, of course, she's right there with him, too. Yeah, that's And right. she's going to be pushing him on, that's you right. know, pacifism, pushing him on critiques of empire. I think this, but this is also comes back to the bigger argument that you make and, and yes, what I yes. see is your attempt to make a, an intervention, a, shall, we, shall we say a radical intervention, because, uh, you know, annually in the run-up to the King holiday, um, we get a lot of the Riverside speech. We get a lot of anti-war right. Uh, speech making upon Dr. King or that Dr. King made, but it but it is it denies the truth of his own story, which is not that he began swept up in the forces of history that took him like a tidal wave into Montgomery uh, bus boycott, and he fell out on the other end uh, with Bayard Rustin by his side and and giving him counsel on how to fight the good fight and that it was really just about civil rights and it was just about a seat at the table and it was just about being able to be first-class citizens. But in fact, he already came with a kind of economic blueprint built in. So by the time you get to the Vietnam War, by the time he's seen the limits of legislative action in the civil rights movement, he's already been uh, committed to fundamental revolutionary change, the kind of change that, as, as you and so many others have pointed out, shifts this country from a thing-oriented society That's to right. a people-oriented people society. Oriented. So you're absolutely right. I think of when we talk to our dear brother Harry Belafonte, he's one of the great freedom fighters still alive, mm-hmm. who meets Martin very young. You yes. go into Brother Harry's apartment, you see that wonderful picture of them in the basement of Abyssinian, first yeah, time they yeah. meet, rich dialogue right harlem at the center but 
Belafonte bringing the legacy of Du Bois and the legacy of Paul Robeson and Martin King bringing the legacy of Benjamin Mays on the one hand, but also this intellectually curious young Negro genius born in Atlanta to Alberta and to Daddy King. And of course, A.D., Alfred Daniel, that's his brother. That's right. And Christine, because it's a family affair. Sly Stone's right about that. It's a family <laughs> affair. There's no Martin without his family. That's right. Just like there's no Martin without the movement. Right. And the movement helps make him. The family helps make him. And that's very important because I think, you know, especially for young people, and I think especially of the Ferguson generation, who I love so deeply, I think that they're courageous, they're visionaries. I'm talking about the Tef Poles and Ashley Yates and the sure, sure. Netta. Philip Agnew. Well, Philip Agnew is, I yeah, think, yeah. a giant in so many in so many ways, but also Brother Tory and, and then William Barber, who's older generation. I think North he's Carolina, probably the great king-like figure of, yes. our, of our time. But all of these folk who gained a deep inspiration as well as analytical illumination from Martin King, what they recognize is they're part of a tradition and that isolated individuals on a pedestal mm -hmm. that they recognize just like you and I, we are who we are because somebody loved us, mm -hmm. somebody cared for us. Mm -hmm. And the question is how much loving and caring will we do in the short time we're here from mama's womb to tomb? That's what Martin understood. Mm -hmm. And he got a whole lot in in 39 years. But <laughs> early on, he's already bringing this critique of capitalism, not a trashing of money-making or an ugly rejection of markets, but it was a very subtle analysis that puts poor people and working people at the center. Mm -hmm. So it's not dogmatic. Any weapon he can get and use, it could be Marxist, it might be feminist later, anti-homophobic later, it might be from liberalism in terms of critiques of centralized power in the public sector of the nation-state, right. it might be even conservatism in terms of the crucial role of family. Right. It doesn't have to be patriarchal family, but family is still very important. Church. Right. It doesn't have to be patriarchal church or highly commodified church these days, you know. Well, one, one of the things that you emphasize is that uh, you, you call him a revolutionary Christian yeah. and a Christian blues man. Oh, yeah. And I think it's obvious that he's a minister to us all, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. But in some ways, his civil rights activism can get lost um, in his faith walk. Yes. And it seems to me part of what you assert here right. is that his faith walk was critical to his radicalism. Talk Absolutely. a little bit about that. And one is because the brother would never sell out. Mm. And you only sell out when you are experiencing spiritual blackout. Mm. You're only willing to sell your soul for a mess of potters when you reach the conclusion that the grounds of your hope no longer can be sustained at the spiritual level, and therefore life is only about the goodies available in time and space, and I'm going to get as many as I can or as much status as I can. You say, oh, so the kingdom of God has become a brand. No. <laughs> the black freedom struggle has become a commercial. Yeah. No. Yeah. Beloved community has become an advertisement. No. Well, we live in a highly market-driven, commodified culture. Everybody concerned about money. Wu-Tang Clan is right. Cream. Right. Cash rules everything around me. But it doesn't have to rule me. Right. Well, see, when Martin comes along and says, lo and behold, I'm a jazz man. I'm a blues man. I'm improvisational, flexible, and fluent, using any weapon I can to empower these poor and working people, beginning on the chocolate side of town. And that's very important because a lot of people love Martin King because he loved white brothers and sisters. Right. That's a beautiful thing. That shows a spiritual maturity. But he didn't go to jail because he loved white brothers and sisters. He went to jail because he loved black folk. Mm. 
-hmm. When he's in that paddy wagon that I talk about, four and a half hours in the dark with the German shepherd on his way to Reedsville Prison. And when he gets out and Andy Young told me he could hardly walk and all he could say is, this is the cross we must bear for the freedom of our people. That's spiritual. Right. That's deep. You know this brother ain't going to never sell out. And it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a deep connection to the life that Jesus actually led, it, it, right? It Which is. is, I mean, it, it is. we can say least of these, but he actually meant it. I mean, so, that's, that's so his diagnosis right. of the world was that these people, my people, are truly the least of these, not just here in America, but globally. And I'm glad you mentioned Jesus because um, Martin was such a Jesus-loving, free black man. The way Malcolm you know, was a, a, a Allah-loving, free black man. Mm-hmm. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Torah-loving, free Jewish man. Uh, the way Toni Morrison is a, uh, a free black woman rooted in her own particular brand of Catholicism uh, and literary genius that she manifests. What, the, there's a connection between having your spiritual roots rich and deep mm-hmm. and being free, being in the world but not of the world. Right. And for Martin, it had everything to do with that Palestinian Jew named Jesus, like myself. Yeah. That, that, that's my truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so let's come back to the connection between Christianity and the blues tradition. Yes. Because that may not be obvious to every that's reader true. and it may not be obvious to every listener. So what do you mean a Christian blues man? You talked about improvisation, but I think you mean something more than just improvisation. You talk about catastrophes. You named Absolutely. four catastrophes that, that Martin Luther King anticipated and recognized. So how does the blues help one deal with catastrophe? I think we have to begin with the inimitable Ralph Waldo Ellison. when He said the blues is a personal chronicle of a individual catastrophe lyrically expressed, mm. lyrically expressed. So B.B. King says, nobody loves me but my mama, she might be jiving too. <laughs> that's, that's catastrophe. That is catastrophe. That's like, that's Sophocles' Antigone. Every force in the world in the cosmos against you, the one person you thought you could depend on, right. she could be driving to. Yeah. Now, well, how does B.B. King <laughs> sing that song? That's, that's the B-side of the thrill of gone, right? How, how does he sing that song? With style, smile, a little help from Lucille, right. his guitar. Yeah. But in Lucille is Muddy Waters, Mal Rainey, Bessie Smith. That whole tradition is there yeah. in his playing and in his voice. Mm-hmm. Meaning that black people, because we are blues people, mm-hmm. we've taught the world something about love, even though we've been hated and despised like cockroaches. We've taught the world something about justice, even though we've been treated so unjustly and unfairly up until this very moment. The blues tradition is a tradition of a people who looks catastrophe in the face lyrically expresses it, critically examines it, candidly speaks about it, courageously lives and is willing to die for that love. It's the caravan of love that the Isley Brothers sang about. It's the love supreme to John Coltrane, <laughs> the Curtis Mayfield, people get ready. That's a love train. And what, what, what the, when I say he's a Christian blues man, in the face of American terrorism, Jim Crow, in the face of being hated by so many people, right. he responds like B.B. King with a smile, with style, with Sankofa, landmarks in the past that constitute when at his back to engage, truth-telling, witness-bearing, living and dying for the people, right. for the least of these, for the poor and for the working people, even though he's not against rich folk, he just recognizes 
that it's very difficult for rich folk not to fall into what we have in the, uh, how did the, well, the Johnson brothers put it, that falling in love with the intoxicated, with the, uh, uh, it's kind of the felicities of bourgeois existence. I forget, you know the line. I don't remember the line. You know the line I'm talking about, but you get, you get intoxicated with the world. It's what it's got to offer right. that power and wealth and so forth rather than telling the truth and bearing witness. Well, you use this term radical love and, and yeah. this is sort of, uh, I think, is, is the last definition of this broader um, definition of Christian, Christian blues man. But you say that, that, that the radical love that King taught and that he lived his life by was a radical love that daily made the self die. That's right. That the ego had to be killed, which is the ego, which is our brand, which is our attachment to the world and the immediacy of the things that make us feel good in order for a sacrificial self to emerge. Absolutely. So this radical Absolutely. love. So how did he teach it? Did it was it was it in the sermons? Was it in how he governed himself? Was it the sheer capacity to be courageous in the midst of chaos? Yeah, that's a, that's a profound question because it's hard to know exactly how anybody is able to muster the level of courage, vision, and service that a Martin King or a Malcolm or an Ella Baker or a Heschel or a Dorothy Day uh, does. Dorothy Day wrote one of the great eulogies of Martin King and the Catholic worker when she said he was someone who really did die every day. And there's no rebirth without death, so it means he's reborn mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. It's like taking a shower, it's like a baptism. Mm -hmm. You're fresh, vital, vibrant, Can't ready to take Can't get stuck on Holy Saturday, Can't right? get stuck on Holy Saturday. You got Good Friday, <laughs> you're killing God. Holy Saturday, God is dead. But there's evidences given the radical love flowing from the blood at the cross that Easter's on the way. Now, most Christianity in America is obsessed with Easter. They don't want to talk about Good Friday. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about Jesus killed as a, as a criminal. Mm -hmm. Just like we got political, political prisoners right now, right. Mumabu Abu Jamal, Sunday, Sunday Ata, and so many others, Sada Shakur, yeah. got to be in Cuba. Well, all of them bearing witness, and the empire comes down on them, you see. Uh, uh, Martin understood that for not just Christians, but for any human being, who wants to reach a level of integrity, honesty, and decency as a long-distance runner. You've got to kill something in yourself, fear. You've got to kill something in yourself, your obsession with position and status and wealth. You've got to kill something in yourself, the sense that somehow it's all about you mm -hmm. rather than you being a product of a larger tradition of folk loving you, caring for you, affirming you, giving you a sense of self-confidence and self-respect. And our young people, especially the Ferguson generation, they are so hungry and thirsty for this process of learning how to die, killing that fear, standing in the face of the police. Police look like uh, we're in the, um, you know, Baghdad rather than in Ferguson, right. you see. And they stand there with courage. And of course, my fundamental question, always is how do we channel that legitimate righteous indignation mm -hmm. through a love and justice right. rather than a hatred and revenge and that's Martin's question and, I, and I'm part of that. And you spent some time uh, 20 years ago writing about nihilism amongst young people. That's exactly right. Yeah. Do you, exactly do you find that this um, journey into King's radicalism helps you to better understand young people from 
20 years ago where you were writing uh, Race Matters to today? I think so. I mean, that's why for me this is my most important text in my whole corpus out of 20-some books and 13 edited books because this is more at the core of who I am and what I'm all about than any other text. And, and dedicating it to my, uh, my blood brother Clifton West, who is the most Christ-like, the most Coltrane, like the most King-like person that I know. And that's true for, for, for so many of us. There's so many folk on the ground who are King-like. I mean, part of the problem is when you look up on television, not too many King-like folk, not too many Coltrane-like, not too many... Christ-like. Yeah. You look on the ground, oh my God, these folk out here doing magnificent work, local activists, grassroots activists, right. day in, day out, and they're learning how to die and learn how to live. And in the New Testament, Paul says what? Christians must die daily. Yep. Yep. Kill that egoism, kill that fear, kill that envy in order to somehow be liberated enough to keep the beloved community uh, in view the, the kingdom in view and that beloved community is fundamentally about ensuring that everybody but especially poor and working people live lives of decency and dignity yeah. I mean that's why for example Martin King would be just just overwhelmed by you know 500 Palestinian babies killed in 50 days and not one mumbling word said by an American politician from White House Congress governors or whatever mm -hmm. and Martin would say what I don't care about the politicians if they cowardly these precious babies are just Count as precious much. as the precious babies in Tel Aviv mm -hmm. the precious babies in New York Newtown Connecticut Los right. Angeles or whatever and then he keeps that moral and spiritual center mm -hmm. that's the key yeah. That's really the key. I want to talk to you about Martin's sense of history because yes, I found, yes. uh, certainly as a historian, um, I was taken by some of the uh, entries that really articulate a powerful sense of the importance of history and that Dr. King himself yeah. not only is a product of that historical consciousness, and that deep commitment to learning. After all, he did have a doctorate. That PhD, right? that's well educated right. brother. Nelson, Wyman, but, and Paul Kelly. You're absolutely right. Absolutely but, right. But that he saw the stakes of historical literacy. Yes. The, that's true. The need to know and to understand and to be able to use history in order to criticize the present and to imagine the future as absolutely as essential, not just optional. So I want to share, share, remind you what you already know, but share with our listeners. So yeah, yeah. King, after Du Bois, the great historian and social scientist, the civil rights activist, uh, the eventual communist and expatriate who moves to Accra, Ghana at the end of his life and is essentially pronounced America as incapable of transformation. Here, King is giving tribute to Dr. Du Bois, a tribute that I had not read. And he describes in the tribute that in Du Bois' own work, he had identified the keystone in the arch of oppression was the myth of inferiority. And that history books had to lie or admit the Negro's capacity to govern. Here he is inspired by Du Bois' 1935 Black Reconstruction, Black Reconstruction. Which, which very well, very much would have been part of his educational learning, even though he was only 10 years old when it was published. 
He says in this uh, tribute that Du Bois writes about the theft of black people's history and talks about its consequences. To lose one his, one's history is to lose one's self-understanding and with it the root of pride. It's not enough to be angry, he says. People must organize and unite. And that when Negro history had been distorted, American history had been distorted. Distorted, Because Negroes, he continued, are too big a part of the building of this nation to be written out of it without destroying scientific history. This is a fascinating, not only a fascinating tribute, but a fascinating ch- challenge to the listeners of this tribute because we know right now that history is under attack all over the country, including, and I'm just going to cite this as an example, in in Colorado back in September, white, black, Latino students, Asian students took to the streets against the Jefferson County, Colorado school board because the school board decided that they no longer wanted to allow students to be exposed to histories, and I'm going to quote here, Mm -hmm. that history must promote citizenship, patriotism, and the essential benefits of the free market system must res- must show respect for authority and respect for individual oh rights. So God. think about oh think about the kind of history you say has been Santa Clausified. Think about the fact that Texas literally whitewashed its textbooks. Think about in Arizona, Mexican descendant children can't learn Mexican American history in the state of Arizona that used to be part of Mexico because it's considered anti-American. So I'm fascinated by Dr. King's sense. He wasn't just making history, right? No, he was was studying. He was studying and and teaching. Interpreting and teaching in that way. But you know, I'm so glad you mentioned this because for me, this is one of the great moments in the history of American culture. When you have the greatest organic intellectual in the history of America, that's Martin King, reflecting on the greatest public intellectual, W.B. Du Bois, Mm -hmm. right here in New York. Mm -hmm. And it's not that widely known. Now, we have to keep in mind that many of Martin's friends told him not to go. Why? Because Du Bois was communist. The last thing you want, because people are saying you're a communist, is to go and reflect on this black communist. And what does Martin do? Kiss my so-and-so. <laughs> I am a free black man. I say what I want. I do what I want. I will give a tribute to the great W.B. Du Bois. I am who I am in part because Du Bois loved me. Right. He loved the truth. Yeah. He loved justice. Yeah. I love truth. I love justice. And Du Bois was not a Christian. He was a post-Christian. He's like the great James Baldwin, you yeah. know, where actually both of them went to church and the church went through them, but they almost had to leave the church in order to promote the gospel right. because the churches were just too narrow in that day. They were too cowardly. Yeah. They were too accommodating to the powers that be, the status quo is in place. And then he says, and we know history is something which is always a kind of history of the present. Right. So the past and the present are always intertwined right. and that third dimension of the future always is the object of our our vision mediated through our understanding of the past past and our actions in the present. That's a great 
speech that Martin gave. Thank God he had the courage to yeah. to give it over against the. In fact, uh, he criticism. closes the speech uh, with um, with a refrain about about being dissatisfied. Yes. So the arc of the speech itself is to get to Du Bois is what he calls divine, divine dissatisfaction. Right. That's brother Martin yeah. on the great Du Bois. Right. Oof. And no, then, it's true. Then a refrain, let us not be satisfied. Let us be, uh, his, his refrain is, let us be dissatisfied uh, with until every man can have food and freedom and he, human dignity That's for right. his spirit. But you can see, though, how that in and of itself is a message in the age of Obama, where you have intellectuals who become Obama apologists, who are no longer dissatisfied enough to acknowledge Wall Street crimes, the Obama administration hides and conceals. Not one Wall Street executive goes to jail. Let Jamal and Letitia get caught with a crack bag, going to jail right away. I think they, I think Massive that, surveillance. I, I, think I mean, you drones dropping bombs on innocent folk. Where is the dissatisfaction Martin is talking about? Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm, I'm going to pick one fine detail. And this, is, this doesn't distract from your larger point, but I do sure. think the holder... Um, the Attorney General's office prosecuted one uh, man of, of South Asian descent <laughs> not too long but, ago. But, but uh, was he year. a Wall Street executive directly tied to the operation? Right. I think it was a kind of m- middle-level person. Yeah, yeah. It but doesn't of course, take away. But I mean, but I hear that. I'm actually being a little tongue-in-cheek. No, no, right, I hear you. It's true. <laughs> but I mean, it's 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 just so sad that we could have a criminal justice system. I mean, look at it on the chocolate side of town, the black folk. Every 28 hours, a young black or brown brother or sister shot by a policeman or a security guard or a vigilante who's deputized mm-hmm. to keep the order. Every 28 hours, black president, black attorney general, black homeland security secretary, not one federal prosecution of a policeman. You figure, this is a key sweat moment. Something, something just ain't right, brother. When we have all the marches, hands up, hands up. Not one critique of the federal government that has the capacity to at least engage in massive investigation. Now, I'm glad that they're thinking about dismantling the police department in Ferguson. Right. That's a good thing. That is. But the policemen still going free. They're shooting black folk like I don't know what. They're still going free. Yeah. Something is wrong. If we got black president, black attorney general, what are we swinging our young people? That you end up with black faces in high places and still got a system that is abysmal failure in terms of delivering justice to our precious and priceless young folk. Now, that doesn't mean our young folk don't need correction, but they need love and respect and protection, too. You pointed out, there's a a wonderful passage uh, that you described. A speech that that King gives about a blueprint. Yeah, to um, young people to in young Philadelphia. People. That's right. That's the, a beautiful moment to the young people. Right before he dies. And and you talk about how young people um, are essentially moving towards the university of integration. Yes. yes. But at the same time, Dr. King is in, in, uh, in elsewhere in his speeches is talking about. Uh, integrating into a burning, burning house. house. What he told Brother Belafonte. That's right. You're absolutely right. So that tension yes, um, yes. in the blueprint speech, because the blueprint speech focuses on self-worth, on excellence. That's right. uh, it has the famous refrain where he talks about being a, a street sweeper, and if you're going to be a street sweeper, be the yeah, street sweeper right. that the angels in heaven will rejoice over. If you can't be a pine tree on a mountain, be a scrub in the valley. Uh, you know, this is the kind of um, speech that can be 
decontextualized as a prescription for personal responsibility. That's right? True. Or even and just quest for excellence. Well, not just, but that's, that's where he was. That's the context. Right, right. But right. I've heard this speech often delivered. Uh-huh. In the context of Dr. King's content of character position, right? So, oh, oh yeah, right. Yes, so we're back. Yeah. We're back to uh, the, right. the the King made for a Hallmark commercial, right? Right. And in that King, to say, be don't if you can't be a pine tree on the top of a mountain, be a scrub in the valley is is uh, is a way of saying you don't even have to have high aspirations. You don't even have to have high demands if you're going to be a street sweeper. Just sweep the streets because we need a lot of street sweepers. Yes, and yes, in that yes. way, I think the lesson from that moment to the present and the absence of a sustained focus on the life King actually led in the way that the radical King presents it is we've completely divorced his critique of integration as, as a burning house. No, that's so these true. young people, the that's blueprint, true. as we understand true. it today, is a blueprint for, as uh, several Harvard MBAs said to Ellis Coase in a book he published a couple of years ago called End of Anger, uh, their rule number 10 was never to talk about race or gender except to say that it does not matter. Wow. Yeah, that's a wow. Wow. That <laughs> so, is something. But so if you think, think about but, success, right? But, but Excellence. Think, yes, Harvard yes. MBAs right, made it, done. passing on message to young people amidst of other lessons like, you know, be hardworking, ambitious, and, and, and do networking. But if you think about that and the blueprint that the King gave out of context, that's the perfect synergy for mm. the parables and politics of personal responsibility which mm. I would argue mm. are right underneath are the infrastructure, the infrastructure that uphold the last 50 years of criminalization. Not about racism oh. in, in America oh. anymore. Not about a systemic critique. It's oh. about individuals yes, who yes. are making bad decisions. Yes, and so if you live yes. in Ferguson, ipso facto, you are suspect and would be criminal because no person of good character, no person walking in King's Santa Clausified shoes would even live in Ferguson in the first place. In the first place. So when Darren Wilson says it's a high crime area that mm-hmm. that doesn't like the police, then he's saying that by definition, these are not people whose rights or humanity we are bound to respect. Bound to respect. No, that that, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's it's another way in which the vicious legacy of white supremacy is recast and reinvented that ends up criminalizing a people, ends up ensuring that their humanity, let alone their intelligence, their imagination, their precious, preciousness, is not acknowledged. That level of disrespect, and of course, you know, that's part of the history of white supremacy, just disrespecting black, brown, and yellow people, right. you see. But I think in Martin's case, though, uh, when he talks about, he links that personal responsibility to excellence, I think he also recognizes that he knows some street sweepers who have depths of integrity, honesty, and decency that far outmeasure well-to-do folk who got are driven by gangster proclivities. Spiritual blackout. Spiritual blackout. Moral <laughs> constipation. Have a little sense of what's right, but ain't nothing flowing because mm-hmm. the greed getting in the way. Mm-hmm. And Martin himself. He did not believe in, uh, you know, material goods and possessions. I mean, he gave every penny from Nobel Prize, of course. Coretta had some questions about that for good reasons. <laughs> you got some precious children. But Martin was like that, that he, he, he was full of that kind of uh, 
uh, uh, commitment, and that's rare, but at least we can aspire to it. The sad thing is we live in the age of the sellout, where to be successful uh, at any cost by any means, mm -hmm. just obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. So that the notions of integrity, we think of, think of black, black leaders these days. When you say the word integrity, who comes to mind? It's not a long list, man. It's just not alone. We won't go into the names. We're on television, even though we, we know it. We can just list the folk who don't fall into it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. good God Almighty. I mean, I was out. So that you say to yourself, well, what has happened? We're not talking about perfection. Right. We're just people. Who, I mean, like, when I see you, I see a brother running Schromberg institution who has the love and respect of people of all colors, but especially black people, and you earn it. It's not inheritance. You earn it. How do you earn it? Day in, day out, telling the truth, bearing witness. We're not talking about the perfection of Dr. Khalil Gibral Muhammad. We're talking about here's a brother who, like James Baldwin said, I want to be an honest man. You know that last line at the preface to uh, Notes of a Native Son? Yeah. I want to be an honest man and a writer. I want to be a decent man. Yeah. I want to be a person of integrity. Your wife, your kids, your great-grandfather, all of them looking on you and saying, we see a brother who is aspiring to integrity. That's also what Martin has in mind. If we can keep integrity, honesty, and decency alive and allow cupidity, love of money, chicanery, get old by any means, or mendacity, just lying, hiding and concealing, then we, we end up the best that that kind of culture produces, and this is in the age of Obama, mm -hmm. is sentimental folk. Give good speeches, but no fundamental commitment to action. Mm. So you get sentimental crocodile tears, sentimental orientations, everybody nostalgic about the past. What you doing now about Jamal, Letitia, and Juanita, and the, the white poor too? Vis-a-vis right. -vis Wall Street, vis-a-vis -vis military industrial complex, those catastrophes that we're talking That's about. Right. Yeah. Ecological catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe, imperial catastrophe, and militarism be it drones or be it in the Israeli and Palestinian struggle. Same is true in terms of the economic catastrophe. One percent of the population own 42 percent of the wealth. In the last six years, the top one percent of the population got 97 percent of the income growth. Yeah. And we can't, and we and can't we agree can't, on a minimum wage, and right? Minimum wage, but we can't even increase. say it publicly unless yeah. somehow you're too critical of black folk. We have had three problems ever since we got here. First first African off the boat, dignified, on his way to the slave auction. What? Too much death too early, too much poverty, chronic, not enough self-love. Mm. We had black folk who loved themselves, respect themselves, eliminated poverty, and didn't have too many early deaths. Yeah. Some deaths are inescapable, you know, disease, but we can fight some disease. If we had all three of those, Man, we have so many John Coltrane's and Nina Simone's and so many Aretha Franklin's and Curtis Bayfield's and Donny Hathaway's and the emotions and the whispers and the dramatics and the delphonics. And that is a level of excellence. All of those folks, excellent, I really man. appreciate you reminding, um, reminding me and, and the viewers on exactly what he meant by excellence in yeah. that speech. Yeah, yeah, uh, so, so just just a kind of way to think about uh, the times we live in, and you yeah. refer to them as the age of uh, Obama, and I think the age of Ferguson. That's true. Um, they go. Where they come together, interestingly, um, and where Dr. King intersects with this moment is uh, James Comey, the current director of the FBI, and I say this at the risk of opening a, a, 
a new file on myself. Oh, no, they uh, got one on you already. <laughs> That's a compliment, brother. We both got big files. That's a compliment, man. We, we, we try to be true to what shaped us. You know what I mean? Doesn't lead us to hate people. We just keep bearing witness. All right. So, go right <laughs> so he gave... He gave a speech on February 12th um, uh, before, the, uh, before the, the law enforcement community of the FBI. And I think what surprised many people and certainly surprised the press uh, and others who analyzed the, the, the speech was that he mentioned Dr. King um, and the file that J. Edgar Hoover opened up on him with Bobby Kennedy's um, approval right. um, after the March on Washington speech in 1963. And he says he keeps the approval, the order and the approval on his desk as a reminder of the sordid history of the FBI, as a way of remembering mistakes that the FBI has made in the past, um, and to hold up King, Dr. King, as an example of a real American uh, hero who was victimized um, by its own government. Now, what's fascinating about that is that, generally speaking, that is the way in which we end the story, right? Triumphed over the smallness of people of, right. of mind and heart in the moment. Right. And yet, the director goes on to talk about uh, implicit bias amongst law enforcement officials, not just in the FBI, around the country. He talks about his own Irish forebearers, uh, who were both members of law enforcement, but also benefited from their whiteness, um, despite racism in their times. Uh, and he talks about the need for engaging the African-American community on its historical understanding of police brutality, um, as well as white officers in the larger law enforcement community to come to terms with its own biases. Now, that's all there. But here's the part that perfectly mixes the Dr. King that we want to remember up with the Dr. King who actually lived. So here, in this part of the speech, talking about the age of Ferguson and Obama says, the answer is a fourth hard truth. These are the hard truths that he mentions. He says, if were so that we would be, I'm sorry. Yes. The truth is, the fourth truth, the truth is, is that what really needs fixing, what really needs fixing, an important qualification that does not attach to the other truth, is something only a few, like President Obama, are willing to speak about, perhaps because it is so daunting a task Through the My Brother's Keeper initiative, the president is addressing disproportionate challenges faced by young men of color. For instance, data shows that the percentage of young men not working or not enrolled in school is nearly twice as high for blacks as it is for whites. This initiative and others like it is about doing the hard work, and I emphasize, to grow drug-resistant and violence-resistant kids, especially in communities of color, so that they never become a part of that officer's life experience. Mm, mm, Drug resistant mm, and violent resistant kids. That's the the real problem that the president is addressing. So in all of this, in this superstructure of ideas about the history of policing in this moment, essentially only the president is showing leadership on talking about the real issue of black inferiority. Right? Wasn't this exactly what Dr. King talked about, the arch of oppression, the key arch of oppression. So even for a man who I believe in his heart is saying the right thing, he believes he's saying the right thing, he's certainly pushing the, the, the envelope on recognizing oh, yeah. bias and racism in law enforcement. 
still articulates and retreats to this fundamental Same. understanding that black people are broken. And if black people weren't broken, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't have the problem. So in other words, the damage is always on black people and not on a vicious system of injustice with decrepit schools that often, too often generate soul murder among poor children, levels of unemployment and underemployment, indecent housing, still not enough available health care. Given all of that social neglect and economic abandonment, the problem is still put on the backs of these damaged people. On the least of see. these. On the least of these. But there's a long, but every empire from the beginning of time has told those kind of lies about precious poor and working people. And Martin is part of this, not just black history, not just American history, not just modern history, human history. Mm -hmm. Going all the way back from the very beginning, having the courage to say, people in power, no matter what color you are, Get your boot off the neck of poor people. Mm -hmm. Now, see, we got too many folk when the pharaoh is black, they don't want to say a word, but the boot is still on. Right. You see what I mean? I see. When Martin was around, what was his relation to black politicians? Well, we know he was responsible in some ways for the first black mayor. What did the first black mayor do? Not allow him to be on the stage. Detroit, Carl Stokes. That's right, right because Martin was too <laughs> radical. Martin said, okay, I understand the Negroes. I'm doing it out of love for the masses. These folk are scared because they now want to be included in the mainstream yeah. establishment. He understood that, but what did he go on to say? Don't become part of the conspiracy against poor people as a black politician. And that's why we have to keep our politicians of all colors accountable. Yeah. You see. One does wonder, uh, as we move into the beginning stages of the 2016 presidential oh, election, Lord where we are likely uh, to have a white president again. Oh, so it's going to be it, another right? president. There's no <laughs> so, doubt about that. It so. looks like it might be Clinton versus Bush. <laughs> yeah. So assuming that, Jesus. it will be interesting, to, to particularly if, if Hillary Clinton should win, um, to see the uh, mental and verbal gymnastics uh, that and black people will come up with in order to not criticize the now sitting first woman president, if it happens to be Hillary Clinton, um, around the issues that will no doubt still be still front and persist. center in terms Absolutely. of this country's history. It'll be fascinating. I'm <laughs> but, but part of it is, I mean, we've lost so much of our moral authority because we will not tell the truth. When black folk are in office, we act as if we want to protect them by any means. And, of course, we need to protect them vis-a-vis lies told by right wing or Fox News or whatever. But, uh, um, but you lose your moral authority, and what happens, you end up with your politicians becoming more and more centrist, neoliberal, financialized, privatized, militarized, financialized, privatized, militarized. That's the neoliberal response to problems, you see. And that's true for Clinton or Barack Obama or Black Congressional Caucus or Democratic Party for the most part. You see, it didn't got a Republican Party, just mean spirit of conservative. That's a whole different thing. Right. But if you're going to be consistent and have any moral authority, if you don't bring critique to bear on your black politicians, then nobody's going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And I think the sad thing is that black America is going to go into such a deep depression uh, when the Obamas leave the White House because it would mean then as he leaves, the black suffering and misery is still in place and escalating. He's got a nice little philanthropic program, not one penny from the, pe from the government. 
philanthropic program for the black brothers. Well, the black sisters catching hell too. Mm -hmm. Kimberly Crenshaw and others are right about that, right? But, but, but black folk will look around and say, but well, dang, what happened? Well, our intellectuals went with him. How come y'all didn't tell us the truth? Well, we would need TV shows. Oh, we wanted positions. Oh, we wanted some lectures. Oh, we wanted so-and-so. How come he didn't tell the truth? Now, there is some truth telling on MSNBC, but not a whole lot. I mean, when you own a few of them, this little sister Christine is strong. I don't know from Fordham. Yeah, I kind of look for y'all when I can, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So that there's some, Jelani is strong on Wednesdays and Fridays and, 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 and Tuesdays, but <laughs> other days we'll pray for that, brother. Uh, so that there's folk who are just caught because they know deep down the tradition that produced them. You can't be true to Martin and Malcolm and Fanny and, 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 and Stokely and the others without not just taking a risk, but sacrificing your popularity for telling the truth. This is not about popularity. It's about integrity. Yeah. That's what we love about Martin. But again, he's not the only one. Even though this book is about Martin, in a, in a way, it's about a people. Right. It's about a tradition. And it is the greatest tradition in the modern world when it comes to a people who have had levels of hatred for 400 years. And they dished out not black Al-Qaeda, not black ISIS. That's gangsterism. Mm -hmm. They dished out Martin King. Fannie Lou Hamer, Curtis Mayfield, Stevie Wonder. These are love warriors of the highest level. And that's why I'm blessed to be a small part of that tradition. Brother, when the worms get me, I'm going to have a smile on my face. I said, oh, I'm going down with Jesus, Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, and Martin. So you, you mentioned, um, and I, it, we're going to be uh, closing shortly, um, that the... the the last sermon that Dr. King yes. was to deliver yes. uh, was titled, Why America May Go to Hell. Now, of course, uh, we know Brother Jeremiah Wright. He caught hell he, right. by um, preaching the sermon that Brother Martin, the version of the sermon Brother Martin had planned to preach. Right. But I think, again, I mean, let's not forget in, in the course of this, this conversation yes. Yes. that we started with a man who is not only the subject of a national holiday, the man who, for the right in this country, represents the highest achievement of individualism that yeah, everyone should yeah. aspire to because he was a, an individual who wanted us to that's, get to the place where we could be seen as individuals. Yeah. And yet, here, on hours before he breathed his last breath, he was issuing an indictment on the nation. Do you know what that sermon actually was going to be? Do we have... Evidence of it, anything, no trace. I mean, the great scholars of James Cones and uh, David Garrows and uh, Taylor Branches and uh, uh, Louis Baldwin's and others, uh, they might have an idea. I, I don't know. I think the important thing to keep in mind, he didn't say America ought to go to hell. And he didn't say America should go to hell. He said America may go to hell. Why? Because militarism, racism, Poverty, materialism, those four uh, diseases, mm -hmm. but they're diseases that are historical practices at the same time. They are sucking the democratic energies out of America. And America's on its way to fascism. Big government, big banks, big corporations, no accountability, 
all the wealth hemorrhaged at the top and those at the bottom fighting over the crumbs, you right. see. Martin saw that, and he was very honest in, in, in saying America may, in fact, go to hell. And in many ways, I think it, it vindicates my dear brother Jeremiah Wright. I think that history will vindicate our brother. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's a truth teller, and he speaks his heart, he speaks his soul, his mind. And in the end, it's really about the Negro National Anthem. We lift every voice. Mm. But we got too many echoes out there. Mm -hmm. We got too many copies. We yeah. don't have enough originals. Yeah. And when you're original like Martin, you speak your voice even when you're wrong. He was wrong in Atlantic City. Yeah. He compromised with the establishment. Fannie Lou Hamer, critique. She still loved him. Critique. Martin, you're wrong. How can anybody criticize Martin Luther King Jr.? You know, Malcolm X called him a chump. Yeah. You don't use children in Birmingham like that. Malcolm could have used different labels. We understand why they call him a chump. That's a debate. Right. Do you use children against gangsters and terrorists like the police department in Birmingham? That's a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Malcolm was honest about that. What was wonderful about it was, of course, when Malcolm died, what did Martin say? He had the sweetest of spirits. Mm -hmm. Baldwin said he was the most gentle of men. That's Malcolm. Martin could see Malcolm's gentleness. That's why June the 27th, 1964, when Malcolm hears from Martin, I will go with you to the United Nations to put the United States on trial for the violation of the human rights of, of black people. They almost came together. Yep. But Martin knew, well, Malcolm called me a chump. I didn't like it. <laughs> I understand where the brother was coming from. He went too far, but I, the love was coming through the language. Yeah. He was loving the children, and the children were being abused, you know. So here we are, 50th anniversary of uh, Bloody Sunday um, that passed recently. Yes, um, any lessons from uh, his life uh, in terms of the choices that he made, um, the spirit with which um, he believed in this nation and its capacity um, for the young people who, who really do have to carry mm -hmm. uh, these traditions forward? Yeah, Any I, final thoughts for them? I think the final thoughts would be that commit oneself to the highest level of courage. Don't be afraid to tell the truth. Bear witness. Don't be afraid to be unpopular. Be humble enough to learn from each other and others of all colors. But be bold enough to pierce through all the lies and the crimes being committed in the name of democracy. And know and your history. Liberty. And know your history. But keep the love flow. Yes. Because you see, in the end, what I love about Martin is, if love not at the center of it, all the rest of it is sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Mm. That's what kept us going. Brother West, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. This has so been brother. an amazing uh, conversation. Yeah, and thank you for this book. Um, I know that, uh, that everyone will find it incredibly valuable and will have some soul reckoning to do. Brother, I salute you. Yeah. Salute you. And thanks, C-SPAN, always so kind. Thank you. Absolutely. Indeed. God bless you, my brother.